This is The Based Catholic, because Catholicism should be the base of all hot takes. All the cool kids now are unwoke. Some of them are going back to Christianity because it's the only way to be rebellious. Because, you know, everybody's blue-haired, non-binary, and that's like... (laughs) It's the cover of Newsweek, so you have to be like a Catholic doing saying the rosary to be a problem now. Yeah. This current world we've created spiritually for people. It's about money and profit and everything has no history or tradition. Everything's so disorienting and people are going back to things that root them. And now your host, Jessica Kramer. So this past weekend, I was in Cincinnati, which I like Cincinnati. I think it's really underrated. I think it's a lot like Cleveland. There's personality in the architecture. There's history. There's beautiful churches. And one thing that I noticed that was so depressing was we were driving around and I would see these gorgeous churches, these old Catholic churches, Catholic schools. I mean, we're talking gorgeous school buildings that would actually make you want to go to school. And a lot of them were being sold and renovated as condos. And I thought this was interesting for a couple reasons, but also really depressing. It shows the massive decline in church attendance. These neighborhoods are cultural neighborhoods, typically. Neighborhoods where immigrants would come bringing building materials from the homeland, from their home country, to make these gorgeous relics that when you walk in, you feel like you're back there. And so you're seeing a lack of legacy. You're seeing a lack of children from those initial immigrants having the faith passed on to them. They probably moved out into the suburbs. They're probably not in the city anymore. But those churches just have nobody attending them anymore. So that is sad in and of itself. But then they're also just they're gorgeous pieces of architecture. And as a Catholic church, they house our Lord in a particular way in the Eucharist. So to see them close honestly breaks my heart. I think beauty, I think history, I think architecture that lifts the soul up needs to be preserved. And when it's a church, it needs to be used. You know, you can you can get rid of the suburban, ugly churches that we see. Don't get rid of those. And so when I saw those being converted into condos, it also is just tragic in my opinion because the reason that they're being turned into condos is because we have a housing shortage and we have more single households in American history than ever before, meaning more people are living on their own than they ever have. This is not normal. This is a direct result of our sexual revolution And our fertility decline, the fact that people aren't pairing off and getting married and living together and having kids, but are instead just buying now apartments. I don't know. The whole thing just really spoke to me in a really, really tragic way. And so I wanted to actually take the opportunity to talk a little bit about the housing situation, because for a lot of young people, it looks bleak. Hey, Jessica. So I'm at the Young Republican National Convention, and one of the speakers just asked who expected to own a house one day. And in a room of about 200 people, only one person raised their hand. Uh, we, we actually started laughing. <laughs> so that happened. Whenever I want to get like an honest pulse check on how people are doing financially, I go on Reddit because people are asking honest questions anonymously on Reddit. And one trend I keep seeing over and over right now is homeowners buyer's remorse. 
More than half of homeowners experience this, but there's another factor that is compounding things right now. It's these golden handcuffs of having a low interest rate and then feeling like you can't move because even though your home has appreciated, so has everything else. And if you were to take out another mortgage, it would cost a lot more than your current mortgage because of the rate. But it's not just the homeowners that are struggling. I'm also seeing tons of posts like this one where people are like, I can't afford rent or like I'm, I am paying out the nose for rent. Or people like this who are like, I literally don't know how anyone is affording this. Well, the comments are usually like, you need to get roommates. You need to get roommates. It sounds obvious, but people are, are saying, you know, living alone is too expensive. You need to live with other people. Which got me thinking, is living alone more common now than it used to be? It turns out that the number of households that consist of just one person have doubled in the last 40 years. Almost one in three households now just have one person in them. Here's the uh, the breakdown by generation. Now, I think it seems plausible that this could be impacting affordability more widely, but then this sent me down a rabbit hole about community. And I started thinking about this because I saw that a hundred years ago that the number of households with just one person in them was only 6%. And I was like, it's interesting because I've read in the past that the perfect consumer under a capitalist system is someone who is totally atomized. They have to purchase everything that they need, like housing, childcare, um, food, things that if you have no communal resources, you're not living with family or other people, you don't, you, you can't split the burden amongst you. You are now responsible for providing all of this to yourself, which makes you the perfect consumer. It does seem like that's the direction we're trending in. So it's almost now impossible for me to see the housing unaffordability crisis as completely distinct and separate from this broader trend toward individuation of each individual person, separating individuals from broader communities that they can rely on or bigger families that they can rely on. I'm here with Madison Brooks, a strategic communications specialist. Madison, you're 35, newly married, and you just bought a home. You are one of the few to make it happen because many of your peers on the right don't think they'll ever be a homeowner. What does that say about the state of our country? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on today. Um, I think I think a lot of people are looking at the, uh, the state of the country right now when it comes to the economy and recognizing that um, we're seeing some similarities like we have in the past with um, when it comes to inflation and the housing market. Um, but I think what, something, something that gets lost in the weeds is that this is a very different climate um, for housing than we've seen previously. So yeah. um, not to get too technically in the weeds, um, I think one step that's interesting to look at is that in 1930, um, the average uh, annual salary for one person, not for a household, but for one person was... Mm -hmm. Uh, $4,887. Um, in today's money uh, accounted for inflation in 2023, that's $88,888. $88, um, the average pay per, per person right now uh, is $65,000 a year. So at the height of the Great Depression, um, the money that people brought in then was more uh, than it is right now. It's crazy. And it's just wild when you think about that. And then you take into account that... Um, you know, the lockdowns obviously really screwed up the housing supply for more than a couple reasons. Um, you consider that, you know, when there was lockdowns and quarantine, a lot of people that had remote remote work, which became uh, 
way more ubiquitous when the lockdown started. People that had remote work with the flexibility and freedom to move out into the suburbs or move to different areas that were lower cost or maybe had lower costs of living, or in the case of Florida, um, you know, no taxes. That's where I live. And I moved here in, in 2021. Um, you flood the market with a bunch of new buyers um, that now have the freedom to work anywhere, making um, the salaries they can make in maybe more expensive metro areas. So now they move into uh, areas of lower costs that floods the housing market with new buyers that limits the supply, the lockdowns and shortages caused by supply chain issues that then also um, greatly upsets uh, the equilibrium in the housing market where there's a shortage of build uh, of builders because no one's allowed to work uh, shortage of supplies because again, supply chain issues being what they are. Um, and what that adds up to is a 3.8 million um, home shortage uh, as of last year. Uh, and so there's a there's a myriad of reasons why people yeah. are are pessimistic about the housing market. But well, there's um, also also one thing that I think is interesting because it plays into our fertility crisis and nobody getting married and having kids. We have the most single households that we've ever had in American history. Which that's a really good point. That's yeah. a really good point. And and it's obviously you know historically when you've had two people living together in the same home because of you know younger ages of marriage and co- cohabitation. Um, you've got two people under one roof. And to your point, now with more single people than ever, you have you know one person living under one roof, and that's exasperated, again, a very limited supply of housing. Yeah. Um, there's also another factor, which I think is, I think, warrants discussion because you know on the right, one of the things that people talk about is, oh, it's a free market issue. Um, supply and demand matters. And if you, if you fix um, demand, you fix supply and vice versa. But I think one thing that's maybe missed or ignored um, is that in, t- in 2021, um, institutional um, investors or hedge funds bought nearly 25% of the homes um, on the market. In some cases, in states like Georgia, it was as much as one-third of the homes on the market were bought um, by hedge funds. And they're, they're offering cash, well over asking price. You know, First-time home buyers or even regular home buyers with equity, they can't compete with that. And yeah. so you have, an, in- you have an, in- an instance there where you're now having um, – you're competing with banks. You're competing with banks to own a home, and these banks, in turn, are not are not turning these homes just for profit. They're now turning people into renters. Yeah. And so, you know, by 2030, according to MetLife Investment Management, you know, 40% of the rental market in this country will be owned by hedge funds. And so, you know, that presents another major. How does it um, not policy. make you cynical? <laughs> but but that's exactly. I think that's interesting because that's exactly what our colleague um, identified. That only one person in the room of a hundred raised their hand. Like one percent of the people in that room believes that they, in their lifetime, will own a home, and that's the number one. That's so asset. sad. Like I don't. It's, it, yeah. Honestly, the more it's I thought about it, I was like, that is actually like. How does that not wake up? Speaking of, you know, it happened at a young Republicans convention. Mm-hmm. How does that not wake the GOP up? Because I was just talking about this with some other people. There was no mention of this at the GOP debate. I mean, yeah. is there any candidate that actually has a grip on this issue? Because it's destroying an entire generation. I mean, people talk about millennials never growing up, never owning mm-hmm. homes, never getting married, never having kids. I mean, can you blame a lot of people for the situation that they're being raised and growing up in? Well, that's the thing. We, I think I'm, I myself being kind of like a, an old millennial, I was born in 1988. And it's funny you mentioned, you know, getting married, buying a house, having a kid. That's all happened to me in the same year. Um, what, I just had my, what was my, your experience? My year, yeah. I just had my one year anniversary um, on the 22nd and we had, we were pregnant two days, a couple of days after we, we signed our new home. And um, I'll tell you, like me and my wife both have good jobs. We're blessed that we're able to, to work in remote environments. We both work from home. Um, and we had savings, you know, no, very, very little to no debt. 
Um, and again, we know that's, that's, that's an anomaly. That is not standard. Um, I'm 35. She's under the age of 30. And, you know, it's, it's a situation where even with the savings and the lack of debt, we still struggled to find a home. We had to, we had to look around for months. And we were lucky that we found something that, that worked exactly with what we wanted in the part of town we wanted to be in. But we, we definitely paid more than it was worth, certainly more than it was worth two, three years ago. Um, and we, we, made the, we made the choice to go in um, on it knowing that you know, this is, there's going to be some work. And it's what we could afford. It's what we could find. The supply for what, we, for what you could probably want to raise a family in is, is limited out there. And again, we're in Florida. So it's, it's a, and granted, it's a very competitive housing market down here. But you can't just tell someone to say, you can't tell someone, hey, um, there's really affordable housing around the country. You just have to move to the middle of nowhere or you have to move to a really dangerous part of town or you have to be willing to effectively <laughs> tear the whole home down from the inside out and start over. And I think a lot of times, um, to your earlier point about you know how, how millennials are viewed, um, we've been playing catch up since the housing crash in 2006 through 2009. And we've, seen, we've all seen the thought pieces that say, well, if millennials would just stop their Netflix subscriptions and stop eating avocado toast, they could afford a home. <laughs> well, that's not true either, because if you look at productivity versus wages, um, there's a massive gap there. Um, from 1948 to 1979, productivity was up 118%, and wages was almost in line with that at 107%. Um, from 1979 to 2021, productivity was up 64%, and comp was up 17%. So there's a huge gap there that I think just isn't isn't talked about. And it could be argued, you know, does that have to do with um, availability of good paying jobs? Is that the price we pay for having an entire generation told, go get a four-year degree on borrowed money and mm. you'll have a guaranteed job? We all know that that kind of was hit or miss. Or is it inflationary policy? I mean, there's no, there's not a big surprise that um, when you add trillions of dollars to the debt from 2021 to now, to the point where we've added $30 trillion in, in effectively 21 years, of course, that's going to affect inflation. We're seeing that right now. Um, but, you know, you can be cynical and you can kind of accept defeat and go, well, we're all going to be perpetual renters. And, you know, the old the new adage, you'll own nothing and be happy. I just I don't I don't believe that's correct. I think I think millennial Republicans and millennials in general can wake up. I think we can be strategic. Yeah, we have to organize um, and we have to make this an issue because it's an issue to us. And older generations that are established that have assets, that have homes, that have equity, you know, obviously this isn't going to be on their radar because this isn't an issue to them. They, they, it's not to say they don't care, but it's something that they don't think about because it's not what's right in front of them. Um, you know, if you're older and you're close to retirement, you're probably thinking more about the stability of home prices, um, stability of the stock market, how your retirement uh, funds looking. Um, you don't want prices to go down if you're about to sell your home and, you know, prepare for retirement. If you're a millennial, you're, you're itching for the housing market <laughs> to tank so you can actually afford something. Yeah. So this, cro this cross purpose is there. And to answer your earlier question about which candidate has the best platform for that, I don't know. Um, it's, it's, an, it's a new conversation that, I'm, that we're seeing more on the right because historically, you don't really hear um, a lot of Republicans or those on the right talking about housing policy. But to your point, if you want to have successful families and you want to have a strong society, which again, you, it requires um, financial stability to, to build sometimes, housing policy has to enter that conversation. Yeah. Um, and I think it's something that we're just seeing kind of the, we're on the ground floor of it. I'd like to see more conversations about because I myself am deeply passionate about it. Again, I have a home now and I'm, I'm blessed to have that. But I recognize that there's millions of people out there um, much older than me and much younger than me that are not that lucky. 
And I think the number one, the number one asset in transfer, uh, transgenerational wealth is the home. And if people can't transfer wealth between generations and build that, that equity and that asset, it, every generation starts from the scratch. It, we will at that point have a perpetual um, renter class where all they can do is make money. It goes back to the companies that they work for largely. Um, and they're on this hamster wheel forever. Yeah. Where they don't really own anything and they don't really generate anything for their next generation. Everyone just kind of works until, you know, until they can't. And I think that's, that's, if that's what the free market has become, then I think we need to have a very serious conversation about what the free market should be. Oh, I'm already there. Um, one thing that I think is, is nice to see that's being done practically, you know, again, like you said, you're, you're buying houses that are probably more than what they're really worth. But mm-hmm. I think getting back to like smaller homes, maybe not. I, I think there's this trend with millennials, like everyone has to have like the brand new McMansion. Um, mm-hmm. I personally, I love the idea of like restoring old neighborhoods and bringing back the houses with character to life. Um, oh, for ma- sure. Maybe there are there are ways to go about it. Yeah, that could that could be an interesting tactic. And again, this this goes back to my my earlier thought that, uh, and I'm by no means an expert on this. I I think it's interesting that. Um, the progressive left, when they have a cause, they believe in, they unite, they act, they organize, they get active, um, and they take strat- they, strate- they take strategic approaches to cultural issues. Um, the right does it sometimes, but I think you know we we tend to do it for things like you know boycotts of of brands or or building parallel economies. But you know what if a bunch of right wing um, young couples or or, or home buyers band it together and start buying up entire neighborhoods and blocks of streets together to yeah. do that? Yeah. To just kind of at one time move in, buy up the street, and begin fixing up the homes and yeah. and building community too, and raising their kids and building, together. Yeah, exactly right, exactly right. And I think that I think that matters. I mean, we've seen what happens in San Francisco or, or cities like it where um, progressive uh, tech workers or progressive uh, business owners move into an area. Um, the the neighborhood begins to take on the the character of its of its inhabitants. Yes. Um, some call it gentrification. Some people call it investment. Um, I look at it and, and see an opportunity that, you know, places like Detroit or places like um, Anacostia in, in Washington, D.C., where there is limitless potential for admittedly rough parts of town to be bought, uh, reformed uh, and transformed into affordable, safe neighborhoods. I think there's opportunity there, but it requires obviously, well, first of all, capital, but also requires the will to organize and make this happen. Yeah. On a, um, on a large for, enough scale so that it's not just one street, it has to be the entire neighborhood. That's exactly right. And I think one thing that's worth mentioning within this too, is that when you talk about um, fixing up homes, you know, I, I have a, I have a family member who's a general, uh, who basically is a general contractor and he, he's been fixing homes his whole life. It takes work. It takes skill. Um, yeah. And these days it's more expensive than ever because of, again, the supply, sh- the supply chain issues and the prices going up because of shortages. And so, and also you there's might not look, a lot of people that have that skill. That's right. And I, that's a whole nother conversation that I'd love <laughs> to have regarding um, training and um, on-site apprenticeships for, for areas that need more workers and how, you know, bad wages maybe affects that, but it's true. Um, we're kind of seeing a lot of chickens coming home to roost at the same time. And for the millennials that just kind of keep getting, getting it on the chin <laughs> over and over and over again from, um, the cost of education to the cost of housing to job shortages to everything else. Low it's wages, just, it's, just, yeah. it's just one more thing. But, you know, I do think this is something that is a crucible that'll make um, the next generation, our children, stronger. I think it'll make them smarter. I think it'll make them more tactical. And I think it'll also teach us how to make more with less. And I'm not saying it as a cope. Like we just simply accept that um, that view. Well, you'll you'll make you'll make you'll make less. You'll pay more 
suck it up. I don't think that's right, but I just think it's a it's a it's an era that we're living in that we have to learn to navigate together. And again, this just goes back to my belief that the best thing the right can do is organize and start having just real conversations about these issues and um, not treating it as entitlement that you know in a room of hundred people, ninety nine want a home that they may never be able to afford because of circumstances out of their control. Um, the one thing I think is interesting is we always hear, oh, millennials don't get involved. They don't vote. They don't this. They don't that. Okay, well, then how can you blame them for policy failings if they've had no seat at the table, either by choice or by just indirect, you know, not being involved? And so I think, again, I think it's a good thing that these conversations are happening now. I think it's a good thing that housing policy, especially on the right, is now entering the conversation because, again, you can't have a strong family if you don't have a stable household. People should be able to afford the home they live in and not just be stuck in this endless cycle of losing money to something they'll never own. Yeah. Um, I, I believe very um, personally that debt is just this pernicious form of evil. We just cannot seem to shake as a society. And obviously some debt is some debt is, is worthwhile, but this crushing debt that you just cannot get out from underneath. Maybe maybe I wear my heart on my sleeve too much on the issue, but I just I really care deeply about ordinary people. And I just think with a with housing especially, I don't think it should be this hard for people that earn that work hard and and save to just put a roof over their heads. My interview with Peachy Keenan when we come back. We're here with Peachy Keenan, which is a pen name for the writer and author of the new book, Domestic Extremist, A Practical Guide to Winning the Culture War. Peachy, we've been connected over Twitter for a while, so I'm really excited that we can finally do this. Yeah, me too. Great to be here, Jessica. So first, tell me, who did you write the book for? Because it seems that it's written for women, but what kind of woman are you trying to reach? Where is she right now in her life? Yeah, I was trying to reach, you know, women who, I guess two groups, one women like me who kind of had to find their way to, um, you know, domestic extremism, um, which is basically women who are extremely domestic, who decided to kind of reject, you know, their feminist indoctrination and like figure out a way to stay home with their babies, you know, to sort of prioritize family over their career when they could. So really it's for them to sort of build morale and make them, you know, realize that they're not alone. Um, there's a lot of us out there who feel the same way. And then the other group, you know, is younger women who are right now trying to figure out which path to take, um, whether it's like, you know, girl boss careerism, or if there's something else out there, if they, if they need to make, you know, better decisions that will, you know, put them where they want to be in 10 or 20 years. So sort of like wrote it for both those groups. Um, you know, we'll see how many, you know, young militant feminists actually <laughs> pick up my book and read it <laughs> versus like throwing it in a bonfire and burning it and having it banned. <laughs> I was thinking during while reading this, I was like, I wonder if this is kind of a like a letter to her younger self. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I, I think all the time, like, what if I had figured this all out? you know, in time to, you know, have a child in my 20s or avoid, you know, making the mistakes that young women in their 20s make. Um, and believe me, you know, I made plenty. I don't hold myself up as some like model perfect person. I, I'm basically like, here's the mistakes I made. And here's how you can avoid them. <laughs> mm, mm, interesting. Well, one thing based off of reading it, I was going to ask you, do you think mainstream women really mean what they say when they say that they don't want to get married and have kids? Or do you think they're putting on a front as like a means to cope with the reality of everything? Because I, I always think of that opening scene in Hitch. No woman wakes up saying, I'm a 
God, I hope I don't get swept off my feet today. Now, she might say, this is a really bad time for me. Or something like, I just need some space. Or my personal favorite, I'm really into my career right now. You believe that? Neither does she. You know why? Because she's lying to you. That's why. You understand me? Lying. It's not a bad time for her. She doesn't need any space. And she may be into her career, but what she's really saying is uh, get away from me now or possibly try harder, stupid. Yeah, exactly. The whole rejection of like, you know, traditional romance, you know, um, rejecting like, for example, the fairy tale princesses, the Disney princess, the happily ever after, you know, wanting to meet Prince Charming. The rejection of that is funny because, you know, I, and like I write about, I think that that is a total cope. Um, women are just lying to themselves because to admit that, you know, is to, is to admit that you are no longer part of the sisterhood. It's a betrayal of the sisterhood, which is where your real allegiance has to be. It has to be with your fellow sisters in the feminist movement. And you're going to reject men. You don't need them, you know, to, to, to self-actualize and to become, you know, uh, a princess in your own fairy tale. You know, you don't need another character to kind of like, you know, tap you on the, on the head and give you a, a crown to make you a queen. You're, you're your own queen. Um, but it, I think it is totally a cope for the fact that they have not <laughs> been swept off their feet. They have not met the right man or they have not met someone who, you know, meets some ideal standard in their head. Because I, I guarantee you that you can find the most militant, you know, confident, like single girl boss. And if you presented her with some, you know, ideal man, like, you know, whatever her like dream guy is, <laughs> if she if, if you presented this ideal man, her ideal man to her, believe me, yeah. <laughs> she would not she would run <laughs> to the altar with that guy. Absolutely. Um, and there's just there's just no question about that. And so, you know, women who deny that, I mean, if you look around at the women who are the most militant feminists, the ones who shout their abortions at the rallies and who are most into kind of policing other women. They really longhouse the other women. They keep them in line. Like, don't you dare, you know, quit us for that guy. If you look at them, they're, I mean, you know, maybe this is just like my anecdotal evidence, but they seem kind of like unmarriageable women. You know, they're they're not kind of presenting themselves to the world as someone who a man might want to take to wife, you know, um, there's a reason they have kind of like resorted to, you know, hardcore feminism as like a, a as a plan B. Do you think it's that they're acting out of their wounds? I think a lot of because I see this in both spheres, whether it's the manosphere or the feminist sphere. I think a lot of people have just been so wounded by the other sex. And I think they're they're just trying to cope with that hurt and they're not processing it and dealing with it well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think that that is not just the hurt that has been inflicted on women from, you know, men who have like dumped them or used them or, or ghosted them. I think really it goes back to like, how did their fathers treat them? You know, w was their dad there? Did mm. they have a dad? Did they know their dad? Did their dad spend time with them? Do they feel like their father was a loving, you know, um, beneficial support and influence on them? I mean, a lot of people just don't get that men and women. 
And so I think that's where it starts. Yeah, um, in the home. Yeah. And, you know, women who have secure, happy, married parents, you know, tend to have much fewer, they're not perfect, things can happen, but they tend to have, I think we can all agree, you know, much fewer dysfunctions and much fewer, you know, relationship drama and difficulties later in life. It just sets you up better. Now, it's not their fault. You know, whatever happened with their parents or their dad, it's not, it's not that person's fault. But I think that that hurt does get carried over and does kind of make you less well equipped to figure out, you know, what is best for me? Should I, you know, be doing like a random Twitter, I mean, Tinder date every weekend with no, you know, with nothing attached and just it's totally random. It's totally short term. Is that what it's going to kind of make me happy long term? There's no model that they have to follow. Um, and so my, that's why I wrote this book, really, is to like, well, actually, even though even if you weren't taught that, you didn't absorb that lesson from your own family um, dynamic, it's not too late for you. You know, I mean, I come from um, a boomer divorce and, you know, my life, uh, me and my siblings lives were like blown up by our parents divorce. And Instead of, you know, you can either think, oh, well, I guess marriage sucks and I can never get, I should never get married because look what a man does to a woman, a good woman, you know, he'll cheat on her and hurt her and hurt his kids. I better avoid men. Mm. Like I could have gone that way. Yeah. But instead I thought to myself, hey, look what this divorce did to, you know, really made me and my, my siblings and I really kind of, kind of hurt us. I want children. You know, I knew that and I will never inflict this on them. So it really made me mm. overcommit to marriage. Like that was my going to be my compensation. Like I'm not going to ever inflict, you know, this dynamic on my children. I mean, why would I, how would I do that? How, who, who does that to their own kids? It really like blew my, thinking about it blows my mind. <laughs> yeah. Like how could you make, um, how could you ever make a decision, like a, such a selfish decision to you know leave your wife or leave your husband or cheat on each other whatever to hurt the other person when there's children involved that to me like i can't even understand that so um you know my parents divorce was like a what not to do for me and but like your other part of your question is like aren't people reacting to how they're treated by the opposite sex i think yes i think that you know women are not the vic pure victims in this there's men who also feel like they get victimized by women who are really not set up for long-term relationships and are seeking some, you know, kind of unicorn man who doesn't exist. And so like maybe nice guys who would make wonderful husbands and loyal fathers and all this kind of get, get, you know, kind of dismissed because they're not these sort of like alpha male, like fantasy characters or whatever. Um, and then it, it does go both ways. So, it's a sort of bad combo right now. I, and I really worry about people in their, you know, twenties and early thirties who I think overall, you know, want families. They haven't, most of them say they do according to the statistics, but they're just kind of unable to figure out how to make it happen. I liked a few of the phrases that you used in your book, like the one section, what they took from you, because we know what they took from us and mm -hmm. how blunt you were about daycare, calling it toddler jail, I, it's so funny because I actually used to call my two-hour playgroup session that my mom would take me to to learn to socialize while she did her afternoon school bus run. I would call it the orphanage. Like, there were just things that I think, like, as a child, like, I felt bad because there were so many kids that would come with a whole book bag. They were there the whole day. I mean, like, something intuitively about it just spoke to me at a young age, and I, I just 
hated it. Um, but I also yeah. I also appreciated your admittance to what I think a lot of young women experience a couple of years out of college, a total disenchantment of the workforce. And I also like that you acknowledge that a career is now easier to obtain for women than intimacy or marriage or children. Mm -hmm. And I honestly, I don't know about you, but I honestly think that's why we see such a huge number of women desiring to be influencers because they hate work and they want freedom and they need money because they're single. And it's just something that, you know, corporate America is not offering. So something I wanted to ask you is what is your advice for women who want to get married and have kids? But because they're single longer than they thought that they would be, they're kind of forced to lean into their careers, even though they don't want to. Um, well, I mean, yes, if you're, you know, if you're single and you need to support yourself, you need to support yourself. And I understand that. And I did that my, all in my 20s. I was, you know, I had boyfriends here and there, but I always supported myself. And I was not, you know, the idea that I would get married as like an escape from the rat race, like didn't even enter my mind. That was like not even a thing anyone discussed. Like if only an, a successful man would marry me and take me away from this. But, um, you know, in retrospect, that is stupid. Like, yeah, you should be looking for a man who can at least, you know, mostly support you and allow you to stay home with your little kids. That's, that's in an ideal world. Yes. Um, for women who feel like they kind of missed the boat, and they're stuck in these awful careers or careers that are not necessarily awful, but just, you know, you're looking ahead at like 20, 30 years of doing the same job. That's maybe not f super fulfilling. I mean, yeah, no one should really live like that. And I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think there's the world is so big and dynamic in terms of jobs and work. I think there's always a way out. You know, I mean, don't do something when you start feeling like you can't even bear to get out of bed and go back into that office or turn on your zoom or whatever, then it is time to go. I mean, you can't really sustain that level of like kind of soul sucking, um, despair. I've been there and like, it's not pretty is <laughs> not good. And you do need to find something in your life that gives you purpose and meaning and joy. And like, you know, for me, my outlet has always been, you know, writing. And like, even when I had my corporate, career, my corporate writing career, I did all that for a long time. I still my real joy and satisfaction was like doing my little fun writing projects, creative writing, whatever. And then having children, obviously, you know, that I was like, Oh, this is this is my real job. You know, anything else is just some bullshit day job. But excuse my language. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's important to find some outlet for yourself. And if you're single, and you can't find and people who want to get married and can't, I mean, I think that once you decide in your head, like get into what I call operation marriage material, and you're just going to live your life to make yourself into someone who would be attractive and desirable as a wife, you know, even if you're not, you know, super young anymore or whatever, there are ways you can kind of live your, change your lifestyle to make yourself into someone who is, you know, could step smartly into a you know, a, a long-term partnership to me, sometimes the best thing to do is to move, honestly, like when you move, <laughs> it's not practical. You know, I understand people are kind of stuck where they are a lot of times now, but if you're single and you have nothing to tie you down, I mean, always going, changing your scenery and going to a new city, a new place, a new dynamic can always feel like a major fresh start. And you're like, an, you're like the new kid on the block again, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> that's something I've told people to do. I mean, it worked for me. You just have like a renewed, a uh, little renewed, little spring in your step. I think when you go to a new, a new place, 
um, you just kind of feel a little more excited about life. You know, speaking of your husband, you say that your husband challenged you in just the right way, that he radicalized you to be more conservative. And I think that effect that good men have on maybe a more feminist minded woman is such a real thing. Do you oh, think yeah. do you think that women need to see like the truth in action in men to warm up to the idea of trad- traditional gender roles? Like, don't you think that like actually seeing it in the flesh just does something? Yeah. And especially if it's coming from someone who is, you know, cool and funny and appealing in other ways, you know, it's not just coming from some like, you know, old boomer or some, you know, <laughs> just like some priest. Or, oh, he's so out of touch. It's coming from one of your peers who yeah. you like, maybe you, you know, are starting to date this person. You like this person. And so you're willing to kind of hear them out. Um, I mean, the, f- <laughs> Look, I think that women, at least for me, I mean, my husband has <laughs> always been like a really good, you know, kind of rudder for me <laughs> and like helping me, you know, I, I rely on him so much for advice, career advice. And, 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 and we're just, you know, we're best friends, but he like, um, he's very practical. And, and I think that, you know, i definitely have an impractical side and, hearing him kind of lay out how he felt about the world or politics or whatever, you know, was kind of eye opening for me. Cause I was not hearing that from my like feminist girlfriends or my male feminist allies, you know, my metrosexual guy friends. Um, he was a totally different, <laughs> totally different type of person. And it was like kind of refreshing. And like, part of me was like sort of horrified and like shocked that he was so, anti-feminist or whatever just such a, such a toxic his toxic masculinity not really i mean he what he was saying was very reasonable that any <laughs> kind of mainstream conservative you know would say but to my ears i had never heard anyone my age like talking about this stuff and so it was like shocking it was like almost like taboo and then i was like oh he's making a lot of sense like this is actually right and i sort of knew everything he was saying already in my heart you know but i had been like you're not allowed to express like, well, I would love to, you know, have a newborn and stay home with it. Like, yeah, <laughs> you're not, yeah. You're stop dating. Like, stop constantly going out. You know, like I had never allowed myself to think those things. You, you really. had to follow. You felt like you had to follow the script. Totally. And, and there is a script. Yeah, absolutely. Do you know, um, it makes me think of uh, this scene in this film before sunrise. Do you know that movie? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. I always feel this pressure of being a strong and independent icon of womanhood and not making making look like my my whole life is revolving around some guy. But loving someone and being loved means so much to me. I always make fun of it and stuff. But isn't everything we're doing in life a way to be loved a little more? I think a lot of women feel that way. I mean, even um, she's a feminist, but even comedian Eliza Schlesinger, she she had once made a joke about when you go on a date with a guy and he asks you if you want to get married, you can be honest and you can say yes. And it doesn't necessarily mean with him, you know, like that doesn't need to frighten someone off if you're just being honest about your desires. Right. And I think that, you know, the real truth is about like dating apps and women who are just, you know, always looking for the next um, you know, swiping for the next guy, I think there's a misconception that they even have about themselves of why they're doing it. And men have that it's just for the, for the hookup, you mm. know, mm-hmm. just for the, for the one night, but I'm sorry, you know, or for the story. That. What's that? Or I said for the story, like there's this new motto, like do it for the story. 
no, exactly. Like then, yeah, you 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 spent the night with some like flashy guy from the Tinder, and you can tell, you know, give your friends the story the next day. Absolutely, that's always been a thing. But the reality is that what she's hoping is that this like really cool looking guy that she saw on Tinder, maybe he can like pluck her from Tinder obscurity. And, you know, if he is really that awesome and then she's like going to be the one that he's going to, you know, renounce all other Tinder dates and cancel them all for the next that he has lined up for the next month. I mean, of course, that is your goal as a woman. You want to be selected. If you think someone was good enough for you to choose, you know, your hope is that they will choose you from the whatever lineup that he has, whatever all his side chicks, whatever, whatever's going on with him. Of course you want to be the cho- one of the chosen one. You don't want to be the one that you, is rejected in favor of the next girl. I mean, that's just like basic <laughs> basic female psychology. And women have like made being rejected by men into this like badge of honor or something. Like it's fine. That's just part of the game. That's just what it is. That's the price you pay for the like one night stand or whatever. I think that's you when you said game, that's exactly what I think I, I notice, and it's so disturbing. I was recently at a Starbucks, and I was overhearing these two girls' conversations. And I mean, there's no guys, there's no one around. Like they're, I'm assuming, being very honest. And they were talking about their latest escapade as a game. And I was just so, I, I've never been like that, so I can't even understand the desire or the the fun of that. Um, but they were talking about it and I was like, I really think that there's something messed up in the way that people are seeing dating. I don't think that anyone has like sincere intentions and is trying to find a spouse and get married. I feel like there is this perpetual, um, you know, competition of who can care less and who can, you know, knock up as many stories or as many, um, you know, notches on their belt. I don't understand how that's appealing to anybody. Yeah, it's, it's not good. It's, it's women who have been kind of coached to act like men, to act like, you know, the traditional stereotype of like the kind of Lothario man and not have, have no emotion attached to anything. Don't get in, don't get attached, you know? And I thought that like, was, well, I thought that was ta- toxic masculinity. I thought we finally agreed that that wasn't yeah, right. good. <laughs> we, we rebranded it as toxic feminism, you know, and like, I can be just like the, one of the guys. And, you know, and meanwhile, everyone's hearts just keep shrinking and, you know, becoming smaller and smaller and smaller. And so that by the time you maybe do find someone who you are going to fall in love with or they're falling in love with you, your hearts by that point are so like kind of scarred, you know, and so that muscle is not used to like being being open that it's yeah it, it makes things really difficult and then to expect you now to move to like the motherhood stage <laughs> after being like tormented <laughs> for 10 years um is is like yeah that's a lot to ask and we're basically training women how to be you know terrible mothers and and, and wives versus helping them do the things now to one day be wonderful mothers and wives and so we're setting them up for disaster. You spent a lot of time in the book writing about the fertility crisis. And one line struck me in particular. You said that there are many missing never born children that their faces may soon start appearing on the backs of milk cartons. I was recently very depressed because I was noticing a closure of so many Catholic churches and schools across mm. the country being sold and renovated as condos <laughs> to keep up with the housing demand since now we have more single households than ever before. 
as a parent of younger children, do you notice the fertility decline? Like, do you notice smaller graduating classes, combined CYO teams, et cetera? Um, yeah, I mean, where I live in um, you know, the Los Angeles area, the Los Angeles school district is always losing kids. Um, every year, there are fewer and fewer kids. They spend more and more per, per pupil, and they have bigger and bigger like support staffs because they got to keep hiring you know, all the union members. But there are actually fewer and fewer kids to educate. People have, it's a combination of people fleeing California, fleeing the public schools, choosing different schools, but also, but also just, but having, yes, having fewer children. Um, I mean, family sizes are much smaller, you know, two is like the max among, you know, most, um, people in California, unless they're, you know, come from like another country where, you know, fertility is good or they're a weird (laughs) Catholic like me. (laughs) In my in my world, because I hang out around with a bunch of like trad cats, uh, no, I do not notice a fertility crisis. Women are like kind of fighting back by being really open to life and trying to have basically whatever children that God you know wants to give them, and not you know freaking out if they when they get pregnant with a fourth or a fifth or a sixth or a seventh baby. So I mean, but in LA, it as a whole, the population of kids is 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 shrinking fast and you'll see that in any any blue city in any i mean really in most cities i mean there are probably some rural communities where people are you know all having the bigger three three plus kids but i mean i know our cities are totally shrinking and you see that in parks you know the only people the main people you see at like a local city park are the homeless junkies you don't see the big hordes of kids that you would that you used to see, you know, in in playgrounds. Kids really, they don't even go to parks because you can't. They're dangerous. Um, my neighborhood, I live in kind of a suburb just outside Los Angeles. You know, this neighborhood used to have every single house on the block had three, four, or more children. I mean, there used to be hordes of children in all of these homes. Um, you know, 20, 30 years ago, and right now, I can tell you that. Um, of my, let's see, the la- the three or four blocks on my street that I can see, I really only see three houses that have children. Wow. Um, that are even like elementary grade school children, three houses. And I'm sure, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it was probably 95%. So you just see the, the disappearance. I mean, it's like really like a vanishing, you know, where are all these missing kids? Like, why, why did the wet people in the West decide to stop having children? It got too expensive. Feminism. They're scared of climate change or people just got exhausted. And it's, it is sad. It, sometimes I feel like, you know, my, are we going to be like the, the, the trad cats to be the last people standing? Maybe. Um, well, it, it it's a few different reasons for different factions of people. I mean, there's just less people getting married. And like you mentioned in the book, it's not necessarily because of a lack of desire to get married. It's just there's a lot of impending forces just making that seemingly impossible for so many. Um, and also just, you know, what's in our water? What's in our food? A lot of a lot of it is just, I think, from the outside being controlled to make us infertile. Perhaps my favorite paragraph in your chapter, Marriage Mindset Under Endgame. I love this paragraph. You write, once the fires of youth and beauty are tempered with age, wisdom, and wrinkles, you're going to be left with a much older version of the man or woman you married. But you will gain by having a companion, maybe the only one you've got, who remembers you when you were at your most sparkling and alive. 
They may not be much to look at anymore, but those old eyes are the only eyes who might still see you in your prime. That is a priceless core memory only a longtime spouse can preserve for you. It also makes watching your own beauty fade easier to cope with. Imagine being 80 years old and still knowing the man who fell in love with you decades earlier. And I think that's why it's so ideal for so many, if not all people, to get married young, be with someone who knew you when you were young. Um, But obviously, that's not everyone's story, unfortunately. I wanted to ask you, do you see God's perfect timing in your own life? I mean, would you have married earlier, even if it meant marrying someone other than your husband? Or do you think that you guys would have gotten on if you would have met sooner? You know, I've thought about that all the time. And <laughs> like, what would I, what if I, what if I had met, you know, what if I had met someone earlier and got married earlier and had more children or whatever? But I guarantee you that if I had met, I mean, I, where I end up is like, well, I know I would never have done anything to different to alter the course of history that led me to have these children. You know, these are the, these are, these are, the, these are my kids. And whatever took me to this path, I'm happy with, cause I would never want to risk their existence, you know, race their, their, their birth or whatever. Um, but my husband, and I often talk about like, well, we wish we had met a little earlier. We, if we had met, a, you know, a few years earlier, I met him in my late twenties, not super late or whatever, but Imagine if I had met him when I was 23 or 24 and we had decided to, you know, spend all of those intervening years together versus like being random, you know, and that is that feels like a loss to me. And I could have had maybe another child or who knows. Um, but I guarantee you, if I had met anyone else before him, I would have met a like, you know, a, a, a male feminist ally, like a progressive Democrat and um I mean, I'm sure I would have not had the the conversion I had and how would that have happened? You know, and I probably would have ended up with, you know, maybe two kids and maybe always felt this weird kind of inchoate, like longing for something more. And, you know, who knows the regrets I would have had, you know, I, I can't even really think about it. I just, yeah, I just have to trust that this was the right plan because it definitely feels like it was. I mean, my only regret now is that I didn't have an... I only, I only have five kids. I would, I would have loved to have, you know, one more. I got too old. That's okay. Um, that is really my only regret. And that's, that's not bad. Uh, lastly, where can people find you, your writing and buy your book? So my book, Domestic Extremist, is available on Amazon and anywhere books are sold. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Keenan Peachy. And you can also read my Substack, peachykeenan.substack.com. All right, that's all I have for you. I want to thank my guest, Josh Booth, for helping me with this week's show, Father Kevin Estabrook for being our show's chaplain, and especially you for listening. Make sure to tune in next week. Animal based. If you're like Aria and need more based, make sure you never miss an episode of The Based Catholic, Saturdays at 5 p.m. on AM 1420. The answer, as well as on all podcasting platforms and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Jessica Kramer helps you be Catholic and be based. There's a show. That's a show.